Hello, Bulldogs. Thank you for tuning in to Who's Behind the Bulldog, Arvada High School's community interview podcast series. I'm your host and one of the assistant principals at Arvada, Jeremy Jensen. Each week, I'll sit down with someone from our Arvada community, be it staff, students, families, or other community members, to hear their stories. We'll discuss their histories, successes, challenges, learnings, future hopes and dreams, and much more. I hope you find some connections in their stories and hopefully are inspired to take some time to get to know them a bit better as our school year progresses. We have an amazing community here at Arvada, and I hope we can continue to strengthen that despite the challenges that await us in these unknown times. This week's guest is Social Studies Facilitator and JCA Building Rep David Holt. This semester, David co-teaches two sections of Integrated American Studies with Lindsay Hewitt and Renell Abrazado. He also teaches World Studies. In this episode, David digs into his role as an AR and identifies some pivotal areas where we as a school are moving in the right direction, as well as some areas of growth. He discusses how he and his co-facilitators and co-planners of American Studies have found a process to embed everyone's opinions in order to find a true compromise and allow for authentic integration. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Dave Holt, welcome to Who's Behind the Bulldog, March, what day is it, 19th, 2019. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. You, uh, did you get the, the Dave Holt reference at all? I do. I am a fan of uh, Arrested Development. So uh, my father's name is actually Steve. So okay, every, my, every time they go, Steve Holt. I was like, my dad's name is Steve as well. Oh, there we go. Tell uh, everyone that's listening out there um, a little bit about who is Dave Holt, David Holt and uh, what brought David Holt into education. <laughs> I love the struggle there, Jeremy. Um, I am a Colorado native, a big part of my identity. I'm proud of it. Um, I tease my wife for being from California periodically and um, love her greatly, but no, nobody's perfect, I guess. Um, but I, um, I spent most of my younger days in restaurants and uh, restaurant management and front of house and then realized, kind of just woke up at one point in my late 20s and realized that I had never met a happy restaurant manager. Um, and decided that I wanted a family and that the restaurant life was not going to do it for me. And so I went back to school um, and got a bachelor's in history and my teaching license um, and then started hunting for jobs. And apparently it was fate because I ended up at Arvada because I substituted exactly one day. Um, and a former Arvada teacher mentioned an opening that had just popped up after the school year existed. Um, and I got in contact with Art Dwyer and had an interview the next day and an offer by that afternoon, so. Awesome, what kind of restaurants were you uh, working in? Uh, I started in, like when I was young, I worked little local ones, and then uh, most of my 20s I spent at various corporate um, restaurants, either uh, serving or front of house managing or bartending, um, you know, anything like that. Um, yeah, kind of all over the place. Awesome, yeah, I spent a little bit of time um, in the restaurant business too. I took like a short hiatus from education and quickly came back because it wasn't as fulfilling as um, the work that we are all doing here. Yeah, I remember I was still bartending and serving on weekends when I started teaching. Um, and I remember having a conversation with a manager about how my attitude at the restaurant had changed. And I 
really couldn't pinpoint what it was. And I had a week here at Arvada actually, um, where a student had a really tough issue, N not even anything major, just something that they just accepted as part of their life, but that was just, you know, kind of softly tragic. And I went in that weekend to work and I said, I figured it out. How do I care about iced tea and pizza? when I have this going on in my life. That's what's changed in my attitude. And that was not quite the last week, but I'm pretty sure I gave 30 days notice right then when I realized that I just couldn't do it anymore and see um, what people go through and then serve them overpriced iced tea and burgers. Yeah. Yeah, when your priorities are like, did somebody get mayonnaise or not get mayonnaise on that sandwich? Uh, it, Side it, of ranch, oh my. <laughs> Oh, man, I got really good at ma not making mistakes. And the kitchen used to be like, you know, you're making mistakes here. And then by the time I was done, I was like, no, you're the ones that are making the mistakes. <laughs> I, I'm not going to have any of that. Uh, David, what have been uh, your best accomplishments from your perspective in your time here at Arvada so far? I I'm most proud of like individual moments. I have, um, you know, former students that I run into since I live in the community um, that talk about where I was able to help steer them or a role model and, you know, students um, that maybe were struggling with some issues um, that have gone on to, you know, kind of get their head on straight. And I'm really proud of that. But I'm also really proud of, um, as most people, at least the adults in the building, and I'm assuming most students know, um, I work heavily with our teachers union. And I'm really proud of getting to be an advocate for education outside of Arvada. Um, I sit on um, the political action committee for the state teachers union, as well as for our own and getting to endorse candidates and talk to politicians and push for legislation um, and push for big systemic change and represent that lens um, that Arvada is, um, right? We're a unique school with a um, unique makeup and a unique pedagogy and being able to bring that voice to the table, I think actually is what right now um, I'm most proud of is, is that kind of work. You know, I know you take your work as an AR so like super seriously. Um, what are some of the strategies? What do you kind of use to just make sure that you're ensuring that all teacher voices are equally heard at the table? Um, I think, you know, they talk about like trust being built. And I think I've worked very hard on one of my, I guess, weaknesses that I've turned into a strength um, is I like collecting the stories and the information and knowing what's going on. Um, but I've worked really hard, especially as an AR, to ensure people and follow through um, that things that people tell me, if they need to be confidential, they're confidential. Um, and I aggregate stories and bring the voices forward as opposed to individual teachers or individual issues if I can. Um, and I know even when talking to like people down in the front office with admin, um, there have been times when my statement has been like, no, this is the concern. It doesn't matter who specifically brought it up. This is something we need to talk about. And so I've really worked on building that trust so that I get people from all departments and all ideologies and all over the place um, that come to me and talk to me and bring me issues that we need to discuss and that need to be elevated. And sometimes people that I don't have, you know, very close working relationships with. 
um, and that I've been very proud of. And people that I really respect and people that I look up to for things that in turn come to me for, you know, when I can be of help in those areas. And so I think that's my biggest thing is, um, is just being open and establishing that reputation that people know that they can talk to me um, and that I do listen and that I do, you know, elevate concerns and aggregate uh, concerns of the staff. One of those uh, components that I think I, I hear quite of quite often is, you know, that need for us to um, really kind of elevate teacher voice with a shared leadership um, that can sometimes have a, a little bit of uh, some time constraints, right? Like, how can we invite voice and provide that time and space and structure to do so while still respecting, um, you know, the immense amount of time that teachers put into their work? which is really hard to find. Like any ideas of how you think that we can find and strike that right balance? <laughs> if I could find that balance myself, um, I was on meetings last night until nine o'clock after finishing. So I don't know because that was actually brought up um, is that even at the district level, um, we want to ensure teacher voice because let's be honest, we have, I don't know the number, but I want to say it's around 63 educators in the building in various roles, and they average 15 years of experience each. That is literally centuries of experience in Arvada that does need to be um, part of that voice. And all of our students have different teachers that they talk to and relate to in different ways. And our teachers have different groups of students that they see the lens through and that they are, you know, relate to and can understand and provide a different perspective than others. And so it is a, it is a real juggling act and a balancing act. Um, and I think the way that we do it is that we just continue to work towards it and figure out time, carving out time for what's useful and vital. Um, right, that we tighten up places where perhaps we spin our wheels or things aren't ready um, for a larger conversation. And so, you know, 10 minutes here um, or 10 minutes there that could have been 20 minutes with five people instead of, you know, instead of with 40 people. Um, and that we just try to make sure that we continue to put systems in place um, that let us brainstorm and work language and figure things out and then bring them forward to all the stakeholders once they're beyond a draft phase once they're at a point where stakeholder input is tweaks instead of you know instead of tearing down the house we're just changing paint colors um, and so i think that's the big thing i think our committee work is a big chunk of that um, i think elevating that and figuring out how to make those committees more efficient and more um, decision making so that by the time um, things within their purview are brought to the whole staff, they've really been thought through, um, is a big one. Um, like I said, just kind of resource allocation, because yeah, it is a huge job, um, especially with everything we have going on in our Arvada and all the things that we hope to achieve. What would you kind of give it as advice maybe of like some of those areas that you're hearing uh, from uh, the wide variety of, of staff that should be more prioritized for eliciting some of that voice and maybe what are some of those areas too that like you know we don't really need to like focus as much on this this is more of a executive type of functioning decision or, or whatnot i think that there is there's some tweaks that can be done um so like moving in that direction was the recent conversation around figuring out a more uniform grade policy um, and there was a working group, an ad hoc committee that worked on that um, and that workshopped that and brought it forward. Um, and that was much moving much more in that direction. Um, but the next step is to start trusting 
and in and having the expectation of put back on maybe department leaders or whatever hey we're sending out this email to elicit feedback we need you to aggregate the feedback and give to us um, so that teachers can give the feedback in their time when it works for them um, and then bring that back to the committee so we probably could have tightened that process up a little bit with the revisions and stuff but i think we moved much more towards that method um, that i'm talking about where there was language there was concrete decisions before it was brought forward and they were simply you know get some feedback and then take that feedback back and rework so i think we're moving in that direction in some of those areas um, i think we just need to continue um, i think we need to continue to work on um, transparency and getting the staff to look ahead at, for instance, department leader calendars, kind of know agendas coming up and get the staff in the mindset that if you need to weigh in on this, talk to your department leader prior to this meeting so that our department leaders come to meetings, come to their committee meetings with information about the way their department and the people that they represent um, feel about issues um, so that when they get there, they're better informed and it doesn't become, um, you know, they don't get bogged down where it gets tabled to meeting after meeting, which some issues do. Um, so I just think it's a few areas like that. And I think some of it is too, is elevating, and I think JCA and some of your building leaders can help with this, elevating the expectation that certain emails are important to read um, and turning some informational meetings into emails that are on teacher time instead. Um, I know that's a scary proposition for administration, especially if it's something important, but when they're just sit and get instructional, um, we need to work on that relationship where the expectation from administration is that teachers will follow through and make sure that they absorb and access that information. And the expectation from teachers is when those emails come out, um, there's something important and they're in lieu of spending, you know, time in a meeting talking about it. They're giving us the flexibility to access it when we need it and so we need to step up and access it um, right and so i think that that's a relational piece um, that needs to be continued do you have any examples because i, I know that it, it is kind of tough to read with the communication like some people prefer like in person some people prefer this to be like verbalized and mm -hmm. kind of explained and some people prefer just to have it read and you know there's this like balancing act that we kind of need to like walk to try to find that right balance uh, so that people feel like they're being communicated well, um, but possibly not like over communicated uh, with because then that infringes upon time. So um, yeah, do you have any like, like specific examples of areas that could be tightened um, or could be done differently? Well, again, I'm going to start with a with a, uh, an example that's moving in that direction, um, and this is actually you, I believe, with the uh, upcoming standardized testing with the SAT and PSAT, um, the training, the information about who's where, all of that has been asynchronous, right? That's all been um, communicated without needing a big meeting. In the past, we've done a big meeting where we sit down and we go through, okay, here's the way that day is gonna look, you're doing this, here's what your desks need to look like, and moving that to an asynchronous model and trusting that there's enough of us that have already done those kinds of things, that it's just tweaks and we can obviously help colleagues as well, um, I think is moving towards that direction. Um, I'm trying to think because our staff meetings 
don't have well i'm sure they do there's there's running meeting notes taken i see you know notes being taken um but i don't um i don't have them in front of me right now um i can't think of specific staff meetings um that could be you know i mean then to not to be uh, disparaging but the phrase just could have been an email um but i just it pops up frequently enough that i see us moving that direction and i think we just need to continue to do so where our meetings become important and necessary um and um like i said i think we're making steps in that way um and it's definitely a relational piece where administration has to trust um, that teachers will step up and access that information as you have with the psat proctoring which we all know is a bunch of legal requirements or contractual requirements anyway with college board and a bunch of t's and i's that have to be crossed and um, you know, we're expected to step up and I applaud you for that, but I think we just need to continue to do that, um, especially with all the online tools that we have um, and the concept of asynchronous learning. Um, I think that a lot of us have tried to structure our classes that way. I know Mrs. Hewitt and I, especially first semester, were doing that with when we were um, doing a flipped classroom where if you were in class, it was because it was something that we needed to talk through, small groups or, you know, breakouts or whatever. And if it was just information, we tried to do that asynchronous for you. Um, we got a new principal coming up here. Um, I, I think a lot of people have already connected with her. Anything that you could kind of name right now is kind of like, hey, if there was this one area that I think our teachers would really appreciate, like getting stronger at and kind of focusing on and honing in on, um, what would be that area? From As teachers or for administration? How about both? I like, I like, I like both. Sure. Um, I think as teachers we've started at least a few of us around the building have started kind of having this conversation where we're starting to identify especially with remote learning um, and the need for student autonomy and stuff um, and the inability to be as present um, in the learning as most of us are used to being um, because of the nature of online and stuff um, i think we've started to identify that we need to start figuring out what 21st century skills our students need strengthening in in the early grades and making sure that we are very intentional intentionality is kind of my new buzzword um, intentional about um, scaffolding and teaching and training those skills in the uh, you know as underclassmen so that by upperclassmen they have that skill set that we want for portrait of a graduate um, and I think we just need to, like I said, as staff, we need to focus, and a few of us have had this conversation, on figuring out exactly how we band those skills out to this is the skill that you need to master as a freshman so that we can build on it. <clears throat> because we're finding students at various levels of development and various 21st century skills, which makes it very difficult for um, group projects to run efficiently. And I think it leads to frustration from a lot of students as well. Um, and it's because we aren't, I think a big chunk of it is because we aren't being as intentional with building on skills. We are kind of taking the whole skill set and trying to construct it all at once. Um, so I think that's something that we need to work on as staff. Um, and I think as admin and talking to uh, Ms. V Hill, she is um, only a relatively recent ad administrator in the course of things, um, almost two decades in the classroom. Um, and so um, she self-identified that she thinks of things with the teacher lens and then steps back to the admin lens. And I actually like that at the secondary, at the high school level, because I think a lot of us, especially with the move to project-based learning and uh, more of a constructivist pedagogy, uh, need concrete action steps to 
um, and ideas to implement as opposed to broad um, conceptual strokes. Um, if um, I can give an example of that Mr. Beckwith helped out uh, Ms. Hewitt and I last year um, when we were having some management issues with larger class sizes, trying to deal with 45, 48 kids at once. And, you know, we've, we've knew of strategies, but just intentionally sitting down and adding a do now and an exit ticket every day when we were in person last year. Um, and even though that's not natural to Ms. Hewitt and my um, teaching style, it, adding those intentionally in really helped with the flow of our class. Um, and they might not have, that might not have been the solution, but having um, Mr. Beckwith come forth with a concrete step for us to try for a week and take back data on how it worked really helped us start thinking about, you know, again, the intentionality of our classroom. And so I think from the admin side, it's that, it's look at what concrete steps can we give um, in evaluations and coaching um, to move towards that. And if that isn't the step that fixes it, at least we've got one more data point to continue to work on whatever we're trying to strengthen. Yeah, that's good. I'm super excited about Ms. V. Hill's um, background, like in so many years in the classroom, because that can only have like positive impact on, you know, doing things from a very practical standpoint. Mm -hmm. So you started talking a little bit about your classroom. Um, really cool stuff happening in, in those American studies classes, I know. Um, can you kind of talk with me maybe about maybe what are some of the favorite things that you guys um, kind of go to? And that maybe not necessarily even this year, but even in the past, because this year has been so crazy, but anything you want to highlight to share with other listeners? Um, yeah, we, well, we've obviously, both of our integrated years have been um, heavily disrupted by the pandemic, as has the whole world. Next year, I think we want to tighten up time frame. Same, same uh, feedback that you know I was talking about for admin and stuff, but we want to type, tighten up our time constraints. Um, but the dystopias and the idea of helping, that's what we're working on right now, and helping kids understand that literary dystopias <clears throat> and failed states or authoritarian regimes in the real world are not that far apart. And trying to really drill home this, this internal understanding that the only thing that keeps society polite and keeps us moving and keeps us going in a good direction is that people um, choose leaders and choose laws that keep us moving that way and how fragile that is, which is terrifying. Um, we, we use Germany as our big case study, obviously, um, in uh, World War II Germany, um, right? Everybody, regardless of your level of education, for the most part, knows who Hitler is. Um, and the kids are really shocked and really kind of internalize this idea that Hitler is democratically chosen. Hitler is chosen by the people and then becomes one of the worst monsters in all of history. Um, and so the only way to prevent that is to continue to, you know, to be civically active and engaged and choose good leaders. Um, and that as soon as we quit doing that, things like that can happen. So I think that's the one big one that we're really excited about. Um, we're moving into students writing dystopian fiction um, and coming up with their own dystopias. And um, like I said, being able to help them understand how these concepts that seem so crazy, you watch Hunger Games and you're like, oh, that could never happen. And then you look into what's happening, what has happened or what's happening right now. I did a, we did a mini unit because students, I mentioned the Uyghur um, issue in China. And so um, we talked about that and we did some discussion and reading about what's going on in China right now. Um, and for kids to understand that those aren't just fantasy um, is that's, that's the purpose for me of history. Um, is to connect and understand 
how these terrible or great things happen, uh, but what role individuals play and what role people play and that you have to step up and do that. It, it feels like a very authentically integrated type of unit and project. How have you and Ms. Hewitt um, and, and I guess the, the whole American Studies team, I guess, really, how have you guys been able to um, find a process that works uh, for you guys to find that balance in order to integrate kind of authentically instead of it feeling like we've got two separate subjects? Um, I think it, that's a really interesting thing. And some of it is a little bit of dumb, dumb luck. Um, Hewitt and I exist in each other's space professionally very, very well. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Mythbusters, and I know our staff probably knows the Mythbusters, but I'm not sure how many of our students anymore, unfortunately, know of the Mythbusters. But they had a 17 or 19-year career working together, and they were famous for shocking people by making the statement that they weren't friends. They were just great colleagues. Um, and while Hewitt and I could go hang out and you know we like each other a lot, um, we're not people who are have built our um, work relationship off of being friends. We've realized that we work really well together, um, that we can exist in each other's workspace, that we pass things back and forth, we complement, we can pick up for things. Um, and that's really helped with the day to day because we just get on the same page and we're really, you know, we're really smooth there. As far as the larger American studies team, um, Mr. White and I were just talking about this the other day. He and I would not be able to share a classroom well. We would not work well in each other's space, but he and I could go spend the evening playing video games together and having pizza. Um, but intellectually, Mr. White and I bounce ideas off of each other and, um, you know, and toss ideas back and forth and um, reject things and iterate. And so as a team, we iterate these big, broad concepts of how these things can come together. And sometimes it's messy and sometimes it takes a couple of sessions. And then as far as the, the nitty gritty implementation, we've quickly figured out that once we have our concepts and we figured out what to what historical and literary concepts really fit together and mesh from our content, the classroom implementation we do slightly differently. Um, we follow a lot of the same things, but how we deliver is different. Um, but we found that we can integrate at the conceptual level as a team and then integrate at the lesson level as a pair. Um, and it's just worked really well, at least for the four of us, because intellectually, we all, even though we come from different or different sides, we're really good about hearing somebody else's feedback, hearing somebody else's opinion, finding true compromise, right? Like the current project we're doing is a compromise of where we, where I wanted to go, where Q wanted to go, where Ogie wanted to go, where um, White wanted to go. Um, with, okay, that's too much, we can't go that way, so we'll chunk that off. Okay, let's limit it to this, Ooh, let's broaden it over to here, and taking bits and pieces from where everybody wanted and coming up with a Frankenstein monster that all of us can look at and go, yeah, we can teach that. Um, and so it's very much a negotiation um, of figuring out, especially between the contents, you know, not just between people, but between contents. Um, we are fortunate, I think, with U.S. Um, that um, and with the flexibility of the English curriculum in Colorado, um, that once we hit on the idea of the 20th century being dominated by authoritarian versus democratic governments, um, it quickly feeds itself into um, dystopian literature and short story, which is both accessible to the students 
really super popular through the last decade or so. Um, obviously, like uh, Hunger Games, Divergent, all of the zombie fix technically are, you know, um, dystopias, like it's been a big thing in popular media. Um, and then that combination let us really kind of run with it because, um, you know, we're all passionate about one part of it or the other. Um, for instance, um, last year um, when I took paternity leave, um, Mr. Ogie um, taught a unit and who's not my partner, he's my counterpart for white, but he taught about Japanese internment, um, which is in World War II and, you know, taking away rights and dehumanizing. And simultaneously, Mrs. Hewitt did a unit on the Holocaust because that's her background. She's researched it thoroughly. She's a bigger expert on the Holocaust than um, probably anybody in our history department, honestly. Um, and so she taught that unit. And even though they're separate content technically they cover the same concepts the same attitudes the same dehumanization the same issues and so the students came out of it whichever class they had with the understanding of what it's like when you remove humanity from somebody and how bad that goes um but having two different exemplars for how it had happened it's a great approach to take right this, these are transferable types of concepts um not just like specific to a you know certain time period or event david what would you consider to be your best failure my best failure one one was uh, just being an idiot 19 year old um and not thinking things through and really having to become uh, vulnerable with a friend um, as an apology and he and I I'm 38 I'm going to visit him once I'm all vaccinated and don't have to worry about um, COVID being a risk and being a responsible traveler um, but then the other one that comes to mind is from college my first time in college I was a business major and it just I was going thought I was doing uh, uh, production management and it was just a terrible fit for me. I came out of college the first time, went back into restaurants, spun my wheels for, like I said, years, kind of thought I was gonna go restaurant management. Um, and then, like I said, then, you know, just woke up and realized I couldn't do it. And I think that's probably one of the biggest failures that I fell, you know, fell down and had to pick myself back up. Um, but it led me to buckle down and go back and get a new degree and come into this career. Um, and I think that for me personally, I would have loved to have gotten there earlier. I didn't start teaching till I was in my 30s. Um, and I would have loved to have gotten there a half decade or a decade earlier. Uh, but that failure of life and not succeeding um, in my first career path and falling back once into something that I was like, all right, well, I'll just do this. And then realizing how miserable that was going to make me. So essentially like a compound failure. Um, fail in my career path, fail in my backup plan, and then having to start over from square one led me here. Um, and lets me really understand middle class suburban or small town, um, you know, in Colorado, I grew up with a relatively easy path. And my path didn't become hard until my 20s when I had to pick myself up on my own. But it gives me a lot of empathy for teens or, you know, parents or whoever um, that are struggling with issues because, um, those struggles, like I said, they came later in my life, um, but I get it. We all mess up and we all have to find ways to pick ourselves up. Um, and sometimes it leads us in weird ways. Um, and that falling back, leaving restaurant management and going back into serving is how I met my wife and how we connected was me getting into the teaching career and starting to go back to school. And so, you know, I have a wife and a one-year-old son and a career that I think is impactful. And it's all because I screwed up royally in my 20s. 
if you were to go back in time to your first day of teaching, what advice would today's David Holt give the old David Holt? So I got to give a little backstory on how I got this job. So I, I mentioned that it started after the school year. We had a couple of social studies teachers leave after the school year. So they did uh, summer replacements. Um, and one of them was a first year teacher with his master's from a very, very, very good pair of schools. And the story I've heard is that the first Friday after like three or four days of school, he went to Miss Yacoveta and said, um, I can't do this. You have to hire somebody else. Um, and so, um, he gave her time to do that. But like I said, I was subbing and found out that there was an opening, got hired and I came in and my sixth period class, I had one physical fight that semester. Um, I had one student who anybody that was here knows exactly what student I'm talking about that was so disruptive. And it, would, it took the first six weeks of literally being willing to tear out my hair before I figured out how to get control of that classroom. And so I think if, I had to um, give any advice to my day one, it would have been how to handle that particular student so that I could teach the rest of the class and get to know them because there were 27 students in that room that I barely knew the name of for six weeks because all of my attention was just trying to survive. Um, and so how to handle that so that I could start forming those relationships with those students instead um, and not take the first half of a semester to even start that process. David Holt, thank you, um, first of all, so much for your time today. Um, greatly appreciate the opportunity to sit down and talk with you a little bit here today. Um, it was really great to learn a little bit more about you and your backstory where paths don't cross uh, super often. However, I do want to thank you because I really believe that you do a great job of pushing us uh, to become better. I think you're always pushing at the right things. How do we become a, more cohesive? How do we become tighter as a school? And I want to thank you for continuing to push us in the spirit of becoming a better, a better school. Yeah, absolutely. I refer to it, the term I use is professionally adversarial. Um, our job is to push each other out of our comfort zone and so that we can come to the best solution possible. Um, and if I'm good in that role, I'm proud to fill it. Awesome. Thank you, David. Uh, take care. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for tuning into today's podcast. I want to encourage you to take a minute to reach out to today's guest and make a personal connection. Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Who's Behind the Bulldog.